Because we just started this series entitled, In the Meantime. Now, this whole series revolves around one question, and it's a perplexing question. And that question is, what do you do when there is nothing that you can do? What do you do when you find yourself in a set of circumstances and there's no way to fix it? There's no way forward, there's no way out, and that's just the way it's going to be. And as far as you can tell, in the foreseeable future, things aren't going to change for you. Perhaps it's your marriage, it isn't what you hoped that it would be. Perhaps it's something professionally and you find yourself having to deal with trying to change jobs or industries or it's something financially in your situation. Maybe it's something physically, an illness that just won't go away and it's not going to kill you necessarily, at least not right away, but as far as you can see, it's just really, really debilitating. Maybe it's that your dreams aren't coming true. Perhaps it's because of something that you did or maybe it has nothing to do with anything that you did and you look into the future and the future looks different than you envisioned what it's looking like because perhaps you're in one of these moments that you're in this in the meantime kind of moment. So what do you do in the meantime? I mean, this is something that we can't fix or that you can't fix or that you can't change. And, you know, our natural response is the same for all of us. What do we do first? We tend to get angry. We get angry first at God, like, God, why have you forsaken me? And maybe even not believe in God anymore because of some of our circumstances. And some of us get angry with ourselves, and we get angry with our families. And you know the temptation after that is always to run. As an example, if you're in a difficult marriage, and you know that you need to stay in, in, in that relationship, the temptation is just to cut out and run. Because we tell ourselves things like, you know what, I'll just get another family. I'll do things differently next time. Things will be definitely, that will be definitely better next time. You know, the temptation is always to give up. Perhaps for some of us, or for some of you, you're tempted to drink it all away or to develop a habit just to ease the pain, knowing that that's not the healthy thing to do. And in fact, you know that trying to do things better is just going to create another problem. Trying to ease the tension, you know, is going to create even more tension in your situation. And so all of us have this knee-jerk reaction, and we tend to get angry with God. And then what do we do next? We look around and we compare ourselves to everybody else. We're just out there and we say, man, they happen to be having the relationship that I'm supposed to have. They happen to be having all the things and all the dreams realized for them that I'm supposed to be having. Everybody else has this perfect marriage. And of course, we get jealous and that leads to resentment and ultimately leads to anger. And then you add social media to that. I mean, we're aware about how well everything seems to be working out for everybody else, don't we? I mean, we just don't see um, what our neighborhood looks like or our friend's neighborhood looks like, we get to see what upscale neighborhoods look like. We don't just get to see what kind of cars we drive or our friends drive, but what everybody else drives. And we don't just get to see what our, where our kids are going or not going to school, but we get to see where everybody else seems to be going to school. And so we have this ability today that other generations didn't have. And that is to compare ourselves not just to the people that we see, but every other single person around the world. And you add to that our very positive, and I, and I love this very positive American outlook in life, that when things don't go well for us, and when there's things that aren't wrinkle-free, the first thing that we do is we throw up our arms and we say, Oh God, where are you? Why have you forsaken? What have I done to deserve this? 
But here's the thing that helps me so much, that when you open up the Word, when you open up the Bible, especially in the New Testament, we discover that the men and the women who bring us the story of Jesus and whose stories make up the foundation of our faith were men and women who were not strangers to adversity. In fact, they faced all kinds of things, and, they, and yet they continued to believe. They continued to move forward unwavering with their faith and their confidence with God and in God. That somehow, the people who bring us our faith out of the first, second, third, and fourth centuries were not put off by adversity. They were not put off by the seeming absence of God, but somehow that fueled them in such a way that they were even more adamant and making sure that the gospel, that the message of Jesus Christ made it out of their generation, out of their century, and into our world today. So as we ask ourselves that question, what do you do when there's really nothing that you can do? And what do you do to keep you from making the mistakes or doing the things that are only going to make things worse? I mean, we should take a look at the scriptures and the people who face those situations. And perhaps the best example in the first century of what to do when there's nothing that you can do is the Apostle Paul. And the reason he's the best example is because he was like us. He never met pre-crucified Jesus. He wasn't one of Jesus' disciples who walked around with Jesus. Paul came to know Jesus after the resurrection and after the ascension. Paul learned what he knew about Jesus mostly from the people that knew Jesus. And Paul became a Jesus follower after he was a Jesus hater. In fact, if people don't like Christians, they would really like the Apostle Paul during this time because however much they hate Christians, Paul hated them even more at that time. So we get Paul, when he first steps into the scene in the Bible, he steps into history as a Christian hater and a Christian persecutor. And he was known as Saul of Tarsus. And you catch this, he gets permission from the government now imagine that he gets permission from the government to arrest Christians and to torture the, torturing them into blaspheming Jesus' name, and if not, at least turning in other Christians that were hiding out. That was his job. And then Paul, the Christian hater, becomes a Jesus follower and became the greatest evangelist of his day. And he went around all the Greek cities planting Greek churches and different churches. But just as he got his life right with God, and he came to faith, and he got in the center of God's will, and I love how we just sang about being in the center of God's will and how hard that is. But just as Paul did that and began doing the things that God asked him to do, something really, really bad happened to the Apostle Paul. He was stricken with some kind of physical ailment. I mean, we don't know exactly what it was, but here's what we do know. It wasn't going away. It was a hindrance, and get this, it was a hindrance to exactly the thing that God was asking him to do. Now, imagine you're the Apostle Paul for just one second, and you just had this Damascus Road experience, and that's when there was a bright line that shines, and God speaks to him, and he is converted in a moment, and then Paul gives his life to following Jesus, and then after he gives his life to following Jesus, he gets this illness that keeps him from doing the very thing that God is calling him to do. So in his turmoil... And in his inner wrestling with God, and his, you know, Paul has his moment of, God, why me? Why can't you take this away? And all that sort of thing. The apostle Paul learned a very, very valuable lesson. And in his explanation, we get this key insight, an extremely important insight for the rest of us this morning. 
And especially if we find ourselves in an in-the-meantime season of life. Now, folks, this is why this series is so important. Because even if you're not going through an in-the-meantime season in your life, I bet that you know somebody who is. And even if you don't know somebody who is, there's a great chance that you're going to be in one of those seasons at some point in your life. Do you guys remember John 16, 33? For in this world you will have trouble. So chances are you're going to be facing this at some point. So here's how the Apostle Paul described this wrestling and inner turmoil in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 7. And I gave you the entire outline in your, in, in your sheet there so you guys can read the whole thing, but we're going to break it down verse by verse. He says, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given. Now let's pause it for a moment because that phrase, in order to, is the first phrase that tells us that there is a, a, a purpose for this. So the Apostle, say, Apostle Paul says, There was a purpose behind this gift. And now what's really interesting, at the end, he uses the word given, and that is the Greek word for the word given is the most common word for a positive kind of Christmas kind of birthday kind of gift. That if Paul was sitting around the Christmas tree opening up gifts with his friends, this is the Greek that they would use to describe the gifts that were given. So this was a positive thing. This didn't mean a curse or it didn't mean a punishment. So the apostle Paul chooses his words carefully, and he says that in order, there's a purpose behind this, to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given. Well, Paul, what were you given? What was this special gift that you're referring to? And as you read on, he says, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Folks, I don't know about you, but I don't think of a thorn as a positive thing in my life. So when I read this, I think, well, Paul, I think you're using the wrong words here. I think you meant to say something else. I think you should be using, I was given a curse or I was punished with a thorn. I mean, this is a positive word right next to a negative word. And the the term thorn simply means that this was a constant irritating problem, just like you would have an irritating problem if you had a thorn right now. A constant irritating problem, and the fact that he uses the, the term torment, this really literally just means to beat somebody up with a fist. So if they were to use something to like what a bully does to a kid at school, this is a term that they would use. So this is what Paul is saying. To keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a gift, thank you very much, of a thorn that just keep beating me up day after day after day after day. And then he says that it was a messenger of Satan. And there's a lot of translators that have struggled with that, with this phrase for a long time. You know, some people believe that this is literally something that Satan did and that God was able to use. Many other people think that it's a figure of speech. You know how some people sometimes say, man, that hurt like the devil or that hurt like hell, which I don't really know what it means, but I guess it means that it hurt a lot. You know, we don't know if it was a figure of speech or if somehow this is a theological statement, but what we do know And what is absolutely clear from the text is that the Apostle Paul saw this thorn as a gift with a purpose, and it wasn't going to go away. And the Bible, again, doesn't tell us what the thorn was. Again, there's a lot of theologians that have studied this, and some people thought that it was depression. And I'll be honest with you, if you read the book of Acts, he had every reason to be depressed. You know, in the book of Acts, it's basically the story of Paul. And if I went through a third or even maybe a fifth of what Paul went through, I think I'd be depressed. So maybe that's what he was going through. I, who knows? 
Some people think that it was headaches, you know, like, like migraine type of things. And, you know, we know that he definitely had eye trouble, and that's the same thing that would keep him from writing and reading and the thing that he wanted to do. And some people thought that he, because he traveled in all these different areas, that he had this problem with recurring malaria. The truth is that we don't know exactly what it was, but again, here's what we do know. It was painful like a thorn, it was humiliating, and it was debilitating. I mean, this is a guy who was called by God to spread the gospel through the entire Gentile world. That in itself should make us and what we're going through feel just even a tiny bit better. So then the Apostle Paul, and I love this part, tells us what he did when he realized that that wasn't going away. And the great news for you and the great news for me is that he did exactly the the exact same thing that we would do if we were to be facing something like that. And here's what he says in verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it from me. I mean, I'm the Apostle Paul here. I get to write half of the New Testament, but I'm not like Superman God. I mean, when there's something bothering me, I ask God to take it away. And folks, let me just tell you, this didn't mean that he just added it to his prayer list on Monday. And then on Tuesday at breakfast, he says, oh, by the way, if you can just take the thorn away, that'd be cool. And then on Wednesday at lunch, he says, hey, thank you for this food. Take this thorn away in Jesus' name, amen. No, this is an indication that there were probably three seasons of his life where this thorn, whatever it was, was so unbearable that he finally fell on his knees and said, God, I can't continue to do the things that you are asking me to do unless you remove this. And here's the interesting thing. That for some of you, you've been told that the reason you're not getting any better and that your life isn't changing is because you don't have enough faith. Folks, I I don't believe that. And the reason I don't believe that is because I believe that the Apostle Paul had more faith than all of us put together in this room. So here's Paul, a man of extraordinary faith, that pleaded with God to do something that would allow him to do God's will in a more energetic and a more powerful way. So he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away, but he said to me, but he said to me, and I know for some of you, this would be a major, major breakthrough. If God would just say something to you, wouldn't it? God, if, if you would just say something, I mean, I can even take no for an answer. I mean, I don't even want to, I don't know if I want to hear it late at night when I'm trying to fall asleep because that, that would kind of freak me out. But maybe during the day when my friends are around, if you could just somehow acknowledge some indication that you're with me, something that tells me that you haven't forgotten me. So the first time the Apostle Paul asked, he heard nothing. The second time, he heard nothing. And finally, during the third season of prayer, where he's begging, God, God, you have to do something for me. You have to give me some relief. This is what verse 9 says. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, maybe the best way to understand this sentence is to interchange these two words in this context, because they really mean the same. So you could also read it this way. He said, Paul, my power is sufficient for you, for my grace is made perfect in your weakness, Paul. And God said, and what God communicated to the apostle Paul, which is what some of us need to hear today, is simply this, Paul, the answer is no. 
And folks, as, as I say this, this is so hard for me because I know that this is very hard for some of you. He says, Paul, I am not going to remove this from you. But Paul, I'm going to give you the strength. I'm going to give you the power. I'm going to give you the grace that you need to press on in spite of the fact that this is not going away. That literally what this phrase means is that God's power reaches. He says, my power, Paul, my my power reaches its full potential, its full measure when you are your weakest. It is as if God was saying to Paul, Paul, I'm going to show off my power through you and your weakness. So the answer to your prayer is no. This is not going away. So now Paul has this other thing to add to this list. It's painful. It's humiliating. It's debilitating. And now it's permanent. And oh, by the way, Paul, I love you and I'm going to use you and people are going to name their children after you. I mean, there's going to be tons of people that name their kid Paul and their dogs Nero. But in, in other words, Paul, I haven't forgotten about you. You are still right at the center of my will. But Paul, the answer to your question, will I remove your adversity? The answer to that is no. But it comes with a promise, Paul, because my grace will be sufficient for you. So what do you do when you're the Apostle Paul? And God, who you're serving with all of your heart and all of your soul, and you're risking your life almost every single day, gets no as an answer. So we should be able to ask Paul, Paul, what are you going to do in this moment of your life, in this season of your life, in this in-the-meantime moment? And what the Apostle Paul writes next, it's pretty unbelievable. I'm telling you, you, you can't make this stuff up because he, he does it with a heart that is so in tune with the will of God. And here's what he says in verse 9. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that, and there's another purpose statement, so that Christ's power may rest on me. Now, if you have a different translation of the Bible, you'll find that it'll say the word glory there as well. So he's saying, therefore, since this is not going away, and it's, not, and it's going to continue to get in the way, since people are going to constantly say, I wonder why God hasn't done that for Paul. Here's how I'm going to respond to this adversity that I wouldn't wish on anyone else that God has given to me. Paul says, I'm going to boast, and then I'm going to glory in it. I'm not going to hide it. I'm not going to pretend anymore. I'm not going to shield it or lie. I'm not going to make excuses for it because if God has chosen this for me, then I'm going to surface it and I'm going to embrace it and then I'm going to own it. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. And when people say, Paul, I heard you got this thing. And Paul says, yeah, I got this thing. Let me tell you about this thing. So as Paul was in, in his in-the-meantime moment, he allowed that to define him so that he can bounce it off, glorified back to his heavenly Father. Isn't that amazing? Now, there's a little grammatical thing happening here with the Greek. So here's another way of saying the exact same thing that I think makes it more easier to understand and even a little more powerful. It says that embracing your inability is a prerequisite to experiencing Christ's ability. Embracing your inability. In other words, he's saying, in order to experience the grace of God, you have to embrace the circumstance. Embracing your inability is a prerequisite to experiencing Christ's ability. And this is so important because for some of you, for some of us at every stage of life, 
we bump up against those unchangeable circumstances, and when we bump up against a thing that is like an embarrassment or something that we hope nobody else finds out about, the first thing that it happens to us is that it becomes a disability in our lives. It costs us not to do whatever it was, it was that we wanted to be. So then our tendency is to hide, and then our tendency is, is to pretend, and our tendency is to lie. And what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that when I got out over all of that and I embraced this and I saw it as a gift, I experienced Christ's power in me. And then he concludes in verse 10 by saying, This is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. To which we say, but Paul... That's not the American way. We're used to getting what we want around here. To which Paul would say, and that's why you are not experiencing the grace of God in the area in which you struggle the most. Folks, all this to say that I think all of this hinges on the phrase that appears at the beginning of this little piece. But it's an important piece of literature. And it's the statement where he says, in order to... In order for God to fulfill his will in this world through me, he gave me a gift, and this gift was a thorn. It was a gift with a promise and a purpose, but I had to see it as a gift and not an enemy. I had to receive it and embrace it instead of resisting it. And once I received it as a gift with a promise, his grace was sufficient. Then something powerful happened that would not have happened any other way. So that brings it to us. And this is interesting, and it's also a very uncomfortable idea. Because if you believe that God can change your circumstance, if you believe that God could somehow magically change whatever that you're going through by either human or supernatural circumstances, like either heal your body or heal your son or win the lottery, whatever it is that it may be, or take some pain away that you can't reconcile, if you believe that God could change your circumstances, but God has chosen not to, Today, you have the option to receive whatever it is that you're dealing with as a gift with a purpose and a promise. You have the option to change your attitude and your perspective about whatever it is that you're facing. Now, the purpose is yet to be made known. The promise is that His grace will be sufficient for you. And the reason I say that you have the option is because I think I would be overstepping my boundaries as a pastor to say that you have to view this as a gift. Because I think this is something that you come to individually, either to reading a scripture or that God even somehow opens up the eyes and you come to this conclusion where God tells you that this is the answer. So I'm just introducing the idea to you. I'm not asking you to accept anything you have as a gift. We have to get to the place where you realize, I think instead of striving and struggling, I'm going to choose to view this as a gift with a, with a promise and a purpose. Now, if you think that's odd, because it butts up against the way you were brought up and the theology that you were brought up with, that says that if you have enough faith, then you should be able to do anything, and that if you don't accomplish that, or if God doesn't take it away, then you must not have any faith, which, by the way, is not biblical. The idea that I'm introducing this morning is the fact that when God chooses not to, after you receive your answer, there, then His grace is going to be sufficient for you. You know, if you were brought up with that kind of thinking, this is going to be very difficult for you this morning. 
And if you think that is unchristian, and if you think that this is somehow an expression of lack of faith, I just want to put your adversity, I'm not making light of your adversity, I want to put your adversity in a broader context. Because our Savior, the Savior of the world, faced a similar situation in his own life. Because the gospel tells us that at the end of Jesus' ministry, in fact, the night he was to be crucified, he was wrestling with his heavenly Father. And here's what Luke tells us this wrestling sounded like. He says that he withdrew from a stone throw away beyond his disciples, who, by the way, fell asleep. I guess you guys might remember the story. And listen to what Jesus prayed. This is what he said. He said, Father, 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 if you are willing which means that I know you are able to, Father. I have perfect faith that if I choose, if you choose to, I have perfect faith that if you have the power to. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Father, you have placed into my hands a gift that is anything but a gift. And I realize that this gift comes with a purpose and it's probably going to impact every human that's ever going to be born. And I know not only that it has a purpose, but it comes with a promise and somehow that you'll sustain me through this. But Heavenly Father, if you would be so willing, would you please take this gift away from me? Would you please take this cup away from me? But if you choose to say, look at how beautiful this word is. If you choose to say no, yet not my will, but thy will be done. You know, the good news is that we have the permission to ask that our cups be taken away and that our thorns be removed. The not-so-great news is that sometimes God says no. But if you choose to opt to see your adversity as a gift with a purpose and a promise in some powerful, powerful way, it's transformational to the people who do this because you enter into the sufferings of Jesus And one day you will come to the conclusion, when you look back, not now, but when you look back, you'll be able to see that God did use that and that it was a gift with a purpose and a promise. And every single one of us who calls Jesus our Lord is grateful that our Heavenly Father said no to His Son in the Garden of Gethsemane. Aren't we grateful? And what we learn there and what we learn from the Apostle Paul and what we learn from our friends and our neighbors who are sustaining or holding on to something like this is that grace begins with not my will, but thy will be done. That sustaining grace, the grace that becomes the power that allows you to put one foot in front of the other day after day is the grace that begins with, if you're not going to remove this from me, Father... Not my will, but your will be done. You know, through the years as a pastor, and every pastor has his own version of these stories, I have run into some remarkable people that have been facing extraordinary adversity with their families, their finances, their their bodies, their physical bodies, and just in different areas of life who came to the place where they were able to say, and arrived at the conclusion that the best thing for them to do was to receive their adversity as if it was coming from the hands of their heavenly Father. I mean, how hard is that to view it that way? They arrived at the conclusion that they were to approach this adversity, this season of life, to what we would become a permanent part of their life, as if it was actually coming from the hands of God himself. You know, I I experienced this for the first time about 10 years ago. And I was sitting at church, listening to Larry preach, 
falling asleep. I'm just kidding, Larry. I wasn't falling asleep. And my phone kept going ringing and ringing. And finally, after service, I checked my voicemail, and it's my sister. And she tells me, Carlos, you have to call right away. Something's wrong with mom. And I knew right away there was something bad. So as soon as I call, she tells me, you know, mom just had a massive, uh, a massive stroke, and the doctors don't think she's going to make it. You should probably come over here as soon as you can. So as soon as I could, I got a flight that night, and I wasn't able to see my mom until the next morning. And what's funny about this for me, anyway, is that I didn't know what to do. So the first thing I did when I walked into the room is that I just lifted up my hands and, and, and symbolically got in my knees because I didn't want to freak anybody out that was in there. And I said, Heavenly Father, can you please remove this cup from me? And I remember I prayed the exact same thing because... I didn't know why I prayed that. It just came out of my mouth. And I said, my family is not ready for that. You know, our mom is only 79. She has a strong will to live. Just, just remove this cup from me. And I know that's a selfish prayer because it was about me and not about my mom. But I obviously wanted my mom to get better. And I said, God, please, please help me with this. And then for the next week or weeks, I had just learned how to play guitar. I knew three chords and I knew one song, Lord, I lift your name on high in Spanish. So I sat there when nobody was looking, and I, played, and I just played there that song. And when she finally comes to, she tells me, man, I felt like there was an angel singing to me. And no, she didn't say that, but, <laughs> but nevertheless, we do some things just to try to get us through some hard times in our life. I tried anything. I was singing to her. I was praying with her. And then what she tells me was the remarkable thing. When we were able to have a conversation, you know what she tells me? Carlos. Should we just accept good things from God? Like, whoa. He says, Philippians 4.3 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, which is something that I've memorized ever since. He says, because in the good and in the bad, it is God who sustains us to, to go through all of this. I'm like, okay. My mom fully recovered from that thing that she wasn't supposed to make out of, and I believe that it was prayer. And um, to say that it was my prayer, I mean, why not? I have the faith. It could be my prayer, but I know there was tons of people praying for her. She completely recovered except that. I mean, she was never the same. Somebody at that, that age that has a massive stroke is never going to be the same after that. But as far as she could, she was able to be restored and started walking, restored her speech. A year later, my sister calls me and says, your mom has breast cancer. So there I go, and I travel back to Texas, and I find out that my mom needs a radical mastectomy. And I, what is the next thing that I did? I threw up my arms, and I said, Heavenly Father, what is this? I mean, first that, and now this? Like, are you going to just take her from us? I mean, why are you having her go through all this pain? Father, remove this cup from me, and in doing so, you remove it from my mom. Well, my mom had a radical mastectomy and beat cancer after that. I mean, she's a mess through all of this, but she beat it. And then a year later after that, I get another call and that says, you know, mom's not doing so well. And this time I lifted up my arms and I said, God, remove this cup from me. And he said, can't. And he told me in so many words, it's not going to happen. It's time. Get over there and say your goodbyes. So I got over there and I just spent time with my mom. And, and I never forget what she tells me. She told me, Carlos, Sometimes you have to accept your situation as if it's coming from the hand of God himself. He says, I'm ready. I'm ready to go. So if you are in an in-the-meantime season of your life, I just want to offer this as an option for you. Would you be willing to consider? Would you be willing to consider receiving it as a gift with a purpose and a promise? 
Now, the purpose is yet to be revealed, but the promise is right now. You can take that promise for you right now that His grace, if you cry out to Him in your time of need, that His grace will be sufficient for you, that His power will be made perfect in your weakness. Folks, this is an opportunity for you. I believe it is an invitation to receive what otherwise has been seen as a bad thing in your life. See it as a gift from your Heavenly Father with a purpose and a promise. Cry out to your Heavenly Father and say, God, I don't know why you're giving me this gift. I don't want this gift, but sustain me through it. And see how your circumstance may change. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, Lord, wherever this message lands and whoever this lands with, Father, I just pray that you would give every single person here the courage to step through the door and to receive what up until now, up until this time, they've resisted. And that, Father, that they would be able to see this that thing that they're going through, or what their family is going through, what their kids are going through, at something with a purpose, that they would experience your power through all of it. Lord, we're grateful for your word this morning. Father, your word challenges us. Lord, and like the Apostle Paul, it's hard for us to boast even more. Lord, but we take that step of faith today in acknowledging that you are in charge, that you have a broader purpose and a plan for our lives. And sometimes we don't understand it, Father. But if it's from us, Lord, we submit to your will, your perfect will, and your perfect plan for our life. We love you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.